Good morning. I'm feeling a little weak this morning, and your response was a little weak, too. It doesn't help me. Good morning. All right, all right, all right. That's so much better. Uh, as we complete our uh, six-week study of the book of Judges, I want us to spend the first seven or eight minutes watching a uh, very well-done overview of the book to uh, set the big picture of this period that we've been studying for this past six weeks in our minds. The video is one of many produced by the Bible Project. Uh, Jason David first put me onto this a couple of years ago, and uh, it is a phenomenal resource site for any student of the Bible. So sit back and watch. So what do you think of that? Um, we're going to leave that up there for a, a few minutes. I'm going to be referring to it. But um, this morning, I want, to, um, I want to complete our study of this very dark period of the biblical story by answering three questions. What actually were the sins? <clears throat> why did God allow this to go on for so long? And why did they fail? So, what actually were the sins? Uh, the first one is actually right there. They did not drive out the Canaanites when God had told them to drive out the Canaanites. Um, God knew that this ungodly community they were moving into would be an attraction to them if they didn't get rid of them because they had uh, perverted sexual practices. They had idol worship that included perverse sexual practices. And God knew that it would, it would be just too much for them to resist. So he said, drive them all out. But they didn't. And sure enough, they succumbed. And you know, it, it, it could have been an an innocent succumbing at the first, for example, it could have been. I don't know if this is true, but uh, the Canaanites believed that the farmer, which was who Israel was, and they didn't know anything about farming because their manna, their food had come down from heaven, not up out of the ground for 40 years. Uh, but, but the Canaanites believed that they were at, as farmers at the total mercy of their principal god, Baal, who was the god of rain and the god of reproduction in Canaan. So if you wanted a good crop, you need to keep, you need to keep that god appeased so that he would do the right things for you. And the Israelites, I think, just needed one crop that wasn't quite as good as the Canaanites, and they're going to say, what? What's the... And guess what? And I think there are a lot of areas like that of life that they could easily have been sucked into because they watched the Canaanites get stuff better, and they thought, well, we'll follow their God. So very early, they embraced this Baal worship, which was an anathema to their God. In fact, in the, in the opening summary of the period in chapter 2, just after Joshua dies, it says this, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So idol worship, especially Baal worship, was the major sin, which of course was a result of not driving out the Canaanites that were in the land. But Baal worship led to all kinds of other sins in their life, and some of them very, very perverse. And that's where those, those last five chapters come in. Now, we're not going to read those. It's a, it's a long passage. But what I want to do is I want to go to that last section right there, and I want to just summarize very quickly for you those two stories in the last, in the last few chapters. The first story, as, as they said, is the story of Micah. It begins at a private home about 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem. 
And Micah is a son in the home, and he stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Now, that's equal to 110 years of salary. So this is a fortune. Uh, And not knowing it was her son that did it, the mother uh, put a curse on whoever the thief was. As a result, Micah admitted it and returned the money back to to his mother. Now, get this. She then gave him 200 of the 1,100 pieces of silver to build idols with. What's that all about? So he ends up with his own private sanctuary filled with idols, and then he ordains one of his sons as a priest, just out of the blue. Well, then soon a young Levite came through uh, from Bethlehem, and, and he was looking for a gig as a private priest. Now, he was only a Levite, not of the family of Aaron, so he had no business doing that. But he stops at Micah's house, and when Micah hears he's a Levite, Micah fires his son as priest and then hires this guy and says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Kind of like a good luck charm. And these are the people of God. About the same way, uh, same time, 20 miles away, The tribe of Dan gets dissatisfied with their God-assigned land and sends five guys out to try and find some greener on the other side of the fence type land. And they pass by Micah's house. They speak to the young priest. They got a blessing from him, went about 80 miles farther north, uh, found some great land just like they had dreamed of. Uh, So they go back home, and they get 600 soldiers to go up and take the land that they found. And again, they stop at Micah's house on the way up to conquer that land. Only this time, they take all of his household gods and say to his priest, hey, we've got a better gig for you. This is one house. How about a priest over a whole tribe? And we read, and the priest's heart was glad. Being interpreted means, I've just hit the jackpot. Well, Micah and a few of his neighbors caught up to them and demanded an explanation, but all they got loosely interpreted was, shut up and go back home or you're dead. That's the first story. Second story takes place near where Micah lived and involves another Levite. This guy had a concubine who had an affair, and out of fear, she went back home to her father in Bethlehem for protection. Well, Micah soon misses her. He he travels to Bethlehem. He forgives her. They reconcile. And on the way back, they stop at a Benjamite town for the night. Finally, an old man, uh, well, first of all, no motels, right? Back then, uh, pretty scarce to find a place to stay. So what you did was you sat down in the town square, and that said, I'm passing through, and I need a place to stay for the night. Finally, an old man coming in from the field at dark offered his home to them, and after dinner, it got really dicey. Some men of the city beat on the door demanding, these are words of scripture, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, they weren't just wanting to get acquainted. This is homosexual Sodom and Gomorrah, revisited among God's people. The old man refused. But when the men persisted, the Levite gave them his concubine, who they settled for and sexually abused all night. And in the morning, she crawled to the house, fell at the door of the house, and died. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I just don't know what to say. 
Here's this Levite. He's able to sleep through the night while they're abusing her in the street. In the morning, he finds her dead on the doorstep, puts her on a donkey, and takes her home. And then, then, he cuts her into 12 pieces and mails one piece to each of the 12 tribes, blaming the Benjamites for what happened to her and urging reprisal. The response is immediate. 400,000 from the other tribes fight three battles against Benjamin. It's, it's civil war among God's people. And in the end, they kill every Benjamite, including women and kids. Everyone except for 600 men. Now they got a problem. The tribe of Benjamin is in danger of extinction. And those who had fought against Benjamin had vowed that they would not allow any of their women to marry a Benjamite. So how can they save the tribe? 600 men and no women. Well, first, one city, Gibeah, had refused to join the fight, so they had not taken the oath about their wives not marrying Benjamites. So they, the other guys figured they need to be chastened because they, they didn't go to fight with us. So they sent 12,000 of their bravest to kill all but the 400 virgins they found. That gave them 400 wives for 400 Benjamites, but they're still 200 short. Then somebody remembered that Israelite virgins danced at an annual feat at the uh, sort of the capital city of the country at this time at Shiloh. And if the 200 wifeless men of Benjamin hid nearby, they could each kidnap a girl and take her home as a wife. And they wouldn't be violating their oath because they wouldn't be giving the girls to the Benjamites as brides. They were being taken. So the 600 men get their brides. The 11 tribes kept their vow. The citizens of Gibeah were punished. The tribe of Benjamin was taught a lesson. And the 12 tribes of Israel were saved. That's the last five chapters. Uh, I want to just quickly review the sins that were in these two stories. First, the tribe of Dan was basically saying, God, you did, you did a lousy job of assigning me this land. We're going to go get our own land. Second, both Micah and the, and the Danites had set up their own places of worship when God had said, no, it's just going to be at the tabernacle at Shiloh. Third, obviously, they made images. Fourth, bad priests. Uh, Levites weren't qualified to serve as priests. You had to be a descendant of Aaron. Plus, God never condemned the never condoned the priest for hire deal. Plus, just ordaining your son as priest, just plus, priests were not to serve private people. And plus, priests were to serve only at one place in the tabernacle. Fifth, the Levites. They were not supposed to be wandering around like these Levites were. They were given cities to live in. But they were wandering around the land, resume in hand, looking for the best kind of a deal. And sixth, riddled with stealing, right? Second story, sexual sin, right? Uh, second, the Benjamites, they should have handled that perversity themselves rather than defending those who were perverse. Third, total disregard for human life over and over and over again. And fourth, no respect for personal rights at all. Demand for homosexual activity, rape, deathly violation of the of the concubine, and on and on and on. So besides the sins of not driving out the Canaanites and taking up Baal worship, we've got all kinds of other religious and, and social slash sexual sins 
running rampant. It is really ugly. Now, two thoughts. First, all these sins mirror Canaanite behavior. No wonder God wanted them driven out of the land. He knew. He knew that if the Israelites were in that world, they could not resist being of that world. Now, we could stop and talk about that in our day and age in great application. I don't have time for that, but you can go there yourself. We have similar challenges. But second, as the video shows, uh, these stories right here, though placed at the end of the book, uh, they don't belong at the end of the book. Those stories took place right back here, right after Joshua died and before the first judge stepped in to be a savior. That means these people didn't work up to or down to, however you want to look at it, this kind of behavior, but they managed to be this horrid virtually out of the starting blocks as a nation. The stories are placed at the end of the book, like the video says, as a transition showing the need for some kind of earthly control of this inhumane behavior. And, without, and within five years after Samson, you know, here's, here's Samson's story right there. Within five years after that, God gives him a king to curb this ugliness. So now the logical question is this. Why did God allow this to go on for so long? First, remember this. God did not want his people to be a democracy in which the people rule. He didn't want his people to be a monarchy in which an earthly king rules. But he wanted them to be a theocracy in which God rules. A theocracy has no earthly king, no ministers of state, no courts, no parliament, no Congress. God himself is the ruler and he expects people to look for leadership from him and give obedience to him. Leon Wood writes this, In this way, God has made the center of interest for people, the focal point of their lives, and the highest object of their attention. God's um, only earthly personnel were to be the priests, whose function was only to prompt people to focus on God alone as the center of their lives. Everything was to be sacred. There, there was no such thing as secular. And God's law had precluded, the law he had given the, his people, had precluded any need for earthly lawmaking. All they needed was for the priest to give instruction about the law and that instruction would always point the people to God. Because that law included both civil and religious regulations, which meant that breaking a civil law was as much a sin against God as breaking a religious law. It, it, it was just, just all one. So under a theocracy, running a red light would be as much a sin against God as worshiping an idol. It was all one law with one lawgiver and one law protector. 
then, if the people live this way, God promised a lifestyle of blessing that is, you read it, and it's almost too good to believe. It's in Deuteronomy 28, uh, and I'm not going to read all of it. It would just take too long, but it uh, goes on for 14 verses, and some of it says this. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Blessed shall you be in the city, in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, of your ground, of your cattle. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you do not turn aside to go after other gods to serve them. What promises? I mean, just... Plus, people of the world could not have missed such a, a, a blessed people. And they would just naturally be coming to Israel and say, what, what's this all about? And they would get an opportunity to talk about their God. And they could have been a phenomenal advertisement for God himself. And then Israel would have fulfilled their, their description. Remember, they're, they're called a kingdom of priests. They could have been a nation pointing others to God as their priests point them to God. And for over 700 years, since God made the first promise of this kind of a nation to Abraham, that's then through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the slavery in Egypt and the 10 plagues and the crossing the Red Sea and the wandering in the wilderness and then finally getting into the land to to, to conquer what they did of the land, that's 700 years. Over that 700 years, God had been designing everything to get this nation to this point in time, to this strategic place on the map. It was the crossroads for the nations of the world. And to this time of detailed preparedness for them to be able to live as a theocracy. No people ever had a beginning that promised something as stupendously wonderful as that laid out before Israel as a possibility. But God had also laid out uh, what would happen if they didn't follow him. And I don't have time to read all of the curses in that same passage in Deuteronomy, but just a few. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, in the field. Uh, Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, uh, your herds, the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And it goes on and on and on. Now, here's something I had never seen before. When Moses communicated this to the people, here's all the blessings. If you follow God and don't follow other gods, here's the cursings. If you decide against this and you follow other gods, here's, here's the cursings. But it's not like Moses is saying to them, here's this incredible life possibility laid out for you but you're never going to do it. It's only make-believe. Listen to what he says. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. 
Neither is it far off, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and into your heart so that you can do it. I never picked that up before. I have set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, he says, choose life. Now, God wasn't obviously looking for perfection from them. That would have been sort of a sick joke from a God who loves his people so much. But there are a lot of options between perfection on one end and what we've been wallowing in for the past six weeks in this story. Then, 15 years after these words of Moses to the people, Joshua said to them, Choose this day whom you will serve. And the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. But... Those two stories at the end that are really right here now, they take place about two years after they made this promise before Joshua. Just two years. Those, those stories, you know, that turned our stomachs a few minutes ago. So now the question, why did God let this go on for 350 years? It seems to make no sense. And it seems to make no sense because it's the same question I ask about God's dealings with me. And when I get the answer, I can never get my head around the answer. Because the answer to why does God let this go on for so long, it's no trick, it's no surprise. It's his patient love and grace. Now think through this. God so deeply wanted his people to bask in the enjoyment of living under his rule only, that he was willing to give them every chance possible to submit to him and to worship him only. That kind of patient love and grace for 350 years is beyond my ability to get my head around it. And remember, he had taken the previous 700 years preparing them for this incredible moment. This was an incredible moment in history when they had the opportunity. They were finally in the land. And they had the opportunity to live the kind of life that would bring the blessings that, that we saw just, just a few of. This is, this is a historic moment of potential. A nation with the invitation to live as close to a Garden of Eden life as was possible once the Garden of Eden life had been so marred and disfigured so he kept offering it for 350 years that's why he brought the discipline of these foreign nations it wasn't just that he finally reached the limit and got ticked off and said okay take this it was love On this human level, I don't know anything about that kind of love. It was an attempt to show them that his way was the way of blessing. It was a desire to make things as bad as possible to get them to open their eyes to reality. 
but they didn't get it. And by the way, they weren't the only losers. Uh, glory that was due their God in the eyes of the world was also forfeited at that point. This is all so sad on so many fronts, isn't it? So why did they fail? Quick and easy answer is, well, they sinned. But that begs the question, why did they sin? Why did they not do what Moses said? You can do this. And I think the answer is crystal clear from the book. Judges is bookended by two statements. The first is in Judges chapter 2, which warns us of the mess to come. And it says this, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And there arose another generation after them who did not know, read, remember, the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord. That's bookend number one. And it's pretty clear this book is not going to be a pleasant read. The second bookend closes the book. It was in the video, Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Do you see how those two bookends tell everything? When we forget God and what he has done for us, it's bookend number one, we have only one option left for how to live our life. That's bookend number two, doing our own thing. Living life locked into a self-centered, dead-end tunnel vision. And mark it down. You know this. That is never a good thing. It's natural. It's common. But it's never good. In fact, that's how the whole human sin mess started. Exhibit A, Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Eve did what was right in her own eyes. And we've been suffering with that eye disease ever since. Exhibit B, when Absalom received advice that his father David should be hunted down and killed, we read this, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom. Exhibit C, remember last week when Samson was drawn to this uh, Philistine girl up in Timnah? He said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Uh, exhibit D, Proverbs warns us, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And then exhibit E, a promise and a warning from God himself, Psalm 32, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. You see, you and I are not called ultimately to live under a democracy. 
the Christians in England are not called ultimately to live under a monarchy. The Christians in China are not called ultimately to live under an oligarchy. We function under those forms of government as citizens, but they've been instituted by God only as a very inferior second best to provide some form of order because as a people, we have rejected God as our king. That's why Paul tells the Romans to obey the governing authorities because God has set them up to be servants for you, uh, for your good. Without them, total chaos. I mean, imagine, imagine Monday morning, no traffic lights, no traffic laws. Total chaos. Um, I've been in countries like that. You probably have too. That's the most panic I've ever experienced. I've never prayed more fervently than sitting in the seat behind the driver on a bus in Mexico. And, and three or four times, both Jan and I said, well, at least we're going to die together. <laughs> Remember that, sweetheart? I mean, it was so frightening. But now when, when, when you and I placed our faith in Jesus... God called us to live under the theocracy of King Jesus. That's the, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I want to repeat a paragraph I spoke just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, I said it about Israel. I want to say it about me right now. God so deeply wants me to bask in the enjoyment of living under his rule only that he is willing to give me every chance possible to submit to and worship him only. His patient love and grace through my almost 78 years is way beyond my ability to understand. Here's what he's had to endure over and over and over with me. I forget him and what he's done for me and in me and, and through me. So then I forget that. I give up on theocracy. That is ruled by God. And you know what I embrace? Autocracy. Ruled by one. It's the only two options. And when I do that, I choose death, not life. And the scriptures are so clear that he intends for us to remember him and his works in order, in order to be able to draw on them for strength, encouragement in times of difficulty to to rehearse them to bolster our faith at, at times um, to meditate on them as as bridges to thankfulness and worship and to speak of them to others as vehicles of praise and if I don't do those kinds of things I, I find myself living life and looking only at present details in my life with no context, no background of his presence and his faithfulness and his sufficiency, and I instantly slide into autocracy. About two months ago, I was, uh, I was really struggling spiritually. Um, I was seeing others who just seemed to love praying, and I didn't. Um, in fact, if it hadn't looked so bad, I would have not prayed in meetings I was supposed to pray. 
I saw folks in our community group so excited about good things happening spiritually in other people's lives. They weren't doing a thing for me. I saw others get so charged up about our emphasis here at RCC on life on mission. And frankly, I couldn't care less. I got to the point that I, this is true, I got to the point that I actually began to wonder if I was even a Christian. I told myself, maybe you've just been a good faker. And as long as I continued looking at just the present details, that malaise continued. You see what was happening, right? I was living under an autocracy, a rule of one, me. Once I lifted my eyes and went back and rehearsed who God is and the work of God in my life, for example, when I walked to the front of the church and placed my faith in Christ at age 13, when I remembered an out-of-the-blue calling of God at age 25, that is, that is the only reason I'm standing here this morning doing what I'm doing. When I re- relived a moment of deep commitment to God when I was working on a drill press in a machine shop at age 28. And when I revisited other unmistakable encounters of intimacy with God over the decades. Once I began to do that, fog began to clear and theocracy became a potential again instead of just autocracy. Remembering God, and as the psalmist says, all of his benefits to me tends to put everything into perspective and tends to remind me that, as Matt says so often, all is well because I live under the rule and love of the king of the universe regardless of what is going on around me. Bailey Brown uh, reminded me Thursday night that if you were at the women's retreat last year, uh, you got a rock. You remember that? And on that rock, you were supposed to write something that um, God had done for you and you wanted to remember it. Well, Bailey took that even a step further. She, she went home and she started keeping a, a sort of a journal for her entire family of those things, which they periodically review. What a great idea. See, that's attempting to live under the theocracy of King Jesus by remembering him and his works in and for you over time. We tend to be such people of the present and then some of us as the future, and so few of us are people of the past. And as a result of that, we forget, so easily forget, all of the beautiful and and powerful and in some of your cases, miraculous things that God has done for you in the past and present just comes right in your face and we forget all that and now it's all about what do I do now? And then it's... See, being able to do that incites strength and encouragement and faith and and thankfulness and worship and and it, it incites a renewed desire to abandon autocracy, doing what's right in my own eyes, and to cling to theocracy, doing what is right in my king's eyes. I don't know what kind of reminders you need, but I'm guessing you need them. Uh, George MacDonald in the diary of an old soul wrote this, sometimes I wake and lo, I have forgot. 
and drifted out upon an ebbing sea. My soul that was at rest now resteth not, for I am with myself and not with thee. Truth seems a blind moon in a glaring morn, where nothing is but sick heart vanity. I don't know about you, but I forget so easily. What's encouraging to me is that God must understand our forgetfulness because over and over in the scriptures, he instituted physical, uh, visible reminders for his people, feasts and memorial rocks and, and all kinds of things. And, and this, um, you know, some people tie strings around their finger, right, to help them remember certain things. And for a number of years, I, call, I carried three small um, uh, stones in my pocket, each a different color, and each of the colors represented something else. And uh, I don't do that anymore. But um, a number of go- years ago, I was I was preaching on the book of Colossians and uh, Paul's prayer for the Colossians, and the phrase "giving thanks to the Father" just grabbed me. And I asked God at that time to start a process of making me a more thankful person. I just had the feeling that if I learned how to give thanks in everything. It would, it would do something for my awareness of, of God in my moment-by-moment living. And I meant everything, giving thanks in everything, from the trivial to the traumatic. In fact, the trivial has actually had more influence in my, in, in my life and keeping me focused on him than the traumatic. I think it's because the trivial occurs a whole lot more than the traumatic does. And by trivial, I mean trivial. Um, do you ever misplace something at home and you start going and looking around for it? Does anybody here do that? Some of you are way too young to be doing that. Um, that's happening more and more in my life right now. I don't have a clue why it is, but it, but it is. Uh, so regularly these days, I'm thanking God that I need him to find something, and I'm asking him to be my GPS to what I've lost. Now, you talk about trivial, right? And I kid you not. He leads me to places where I have, I, I would never have looked myself. Never. And the scary thing is that's where I find it. <laughs> now, I know that gives new meaning to trivial, but by thanking him for whatever comes along, almost automatically now, I've been at this about 10 years, I think, Almost automatically, for, for all things big and small, I'm, I'm constantly calling myself back to remembering him and not just going on with life as if he doesn't even exist, which is basically practical atheism. And that discipline of ready thankfulness has also morphed into a discipline of, of ready asking, all the way from asking him to hold off the rain until I can finish mowing Does anybody else in here do that? Thank you, Mike. Yes, there's three of us. Um, All the way to asking him to take my words this morning and powerfully tailor them for your need and your need at this very moment. It's been a uh, journey of ups and downs for me, but I can honestly say that that discipline, and that's what it is for me, it's become a spiritual discipline of thankfulness, has done more as a constant reminder that I live under 
the theocracy of King Jesus than any other reminders I have ever tried in the past. Now, that may have no application to you whatsoever. All I hope it does is stimulate your thinking. On the night of his conversion to Christ on November 23, 1654, Blaise Pascal penned these words to capture his encounter with the living God. Fire. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Certainty, certainty, emotion, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. Oblivion of the world and of everything except God. Joy, joy, joy. Tears of joy. And when he died eight years later, they found that memorial sewn into his jacket next to his heart. And he had kept it there from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. To remind. To remind. So, speaking of remembering. If ever a man abandoned autocracy and embraced theocracy, it was the man, Jesus. At the moment of the ultimate testing for any man in all of eternity, he remembered his father and he said, not my will, but thine. Not what seems right in my eyes, but what seems right in your eyes. Not autocracy, but theocracy. And that is the one who has promised each one of us that his grace is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in us, in our weakness. He lives in us. And if, if we ask, he, he wants to and will help us to remember. Because you see, you are not going to pull that off on your own. You need the one who has done it, who has forged the path, and now we just follow him. And we say, through Christ, through Christ, I can do all things. Every Sunday we come to this table to remember, because we must or we'll just forget. As you feast at this table this morning, Maybe your prayer could be, my king, help me to remember. Let's pray. Father, we are people of flesh. We are people of weakness. We are people who so desperately need you to help us to remember you and what you have done. So I pray that we would not be like the people of the book of Judges who forgot you and what you have done and as a result just did what was right in their own eyes. Father, we want to do what is right in your eyes. We want to live with your eye upon us, directing us, and with us responding to those movements of your eye. Meet us in whatever way, Lord, you need to to make that reality in our lives. Now thank you for this, the greatest of all remembrances. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.
If you uh, have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. If uh, this morning you are doing that and you're realizing, yeah, I, I'm autocracy. I want theocracy. He says, come, come. And if you're doing that this morning, this table is done for you as well. And I remind you that maybe you want to come with a prayer. Jesus, help me to remember.